Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. incredibly excited to have as my guest today, Harold Schechter, one of the most prolific true crime authors in America. Anyone who's a fan of historical crime has read one or more of his books. Here are a few of the titles. Depraved, Deranged, Bestial, Deviant, Fatal, The Devil's Gentleman, and most recently, Maneater. He could literally be a guest on my show for the next six months, with his knowledge of historical serial killers like H.H. Holmes, Albert Fish, and Ed Gein. He's also written a wonderful historical mystery series with Edgar Allan Poe as his crime-solving protagonist. His books are available both online and in bookstores everywhere. I asked him, and he graciously agreed to talk about my favorite of his works, Fiend, the story of one of America's youngest and earliest serial killers, Jesse Harding Pomeroy. Thank you so much, Mr. Harold Schechter, for agreeing to talk with me today. Now let's go back to the beginning. At the very end of 1871 and into 1872, a series of assaults takes place in Chelsea and South Boston, Massachusetts. Can you talk about what happened? Well, uh, there were a a number of young boys uh, who were found in these remote outbuildings, and uh, each one had been beaten and tortured. Their injuries uh, had become increasingly severe um, with each successive young boy. Uh, They'd been tied up. They had been stripped. um, They'd been beaten with a belt. Uh, Eventually, some of them were stabbed with knives and they had been threatened with uh, castration, and some of them had been facially mutilated. And they escalate in their brutality. Each child manages to escape, but the abuse grows worse in each case. They escalate in severity, they escalate in sadism. There were very young boys. Uh, each one explained you know, that they had been lured to these remote places by an older boy. Uh, who had promised them various things to take them to see a circus or one thing or another. And some of the boys eventually described the attacker as an older boy with a marble eye. And as you mentioned in your book, these little boys, many of them only four, five, six years old, are tied to a pole or a beam, flogged with a belt, and they tell the police that the older boy who does it dances maniacally around them, uh, aroused by each whipping. In one case, this older boy 
douses salt water into one of the boy's wounds after he's cut him with a knife. And in the last case, he actually takes a bite out of one of the boy's cheeks. And the, the police, of course, along with the entire city, are terribly disturbed by this boy torturer terrorizing the neighborhoods. And the police, anxious to find him, begin their investigation. Well, eventually, uh, the one of the boys, again, was able to provide something of a physical description of the attacker. Again, he described him as an, an older boy with what he called a marble eye. And uh, the police took the young boy around to various schools. And, and at one point, actually, the, the kid was in the same room as Jesse Pomeroy, although he wasn't able to identify him. But for some reason, uh, that is a little unclear, uh, afterwards, Jesse felt compelled to pay a visit to the police station, and uh, the kid was able to identify him at that point. There wasn't anything normal about Jesse Pomeroy. His home life, not typical for the time, the way he looked frightened people, and the way he acted wasn't exactly normal either. Yeah. Can you describe him? One of the interesting things to me about Pomeroy is that he confirms one conclusion that I have reached in my study of serial killers from the past and from the present, which is that one factor that you find in, in their childhoods is often some extreme form of humiliation, which can take the form of um, physical abuse, but also emotional, psychological abuse. Jesse was born with some physical deformities, facial deformities. He had this one kind of ghastly white eye with a film over it, and he also had a hair lip. So he, you know, he was subjected from a very early age to kind of merciless mockery from other children. From what we know of his upbringing, his father was also physically abusive to him and would subject him to very, very severe whippings uh, for minor infractions. Of course, back then, you know, a lot of people followed the old maxim of spare the rod and spoil the child. But in Jesse's case, that seemed to be very, very extreme. And in fact, it seemed to be one of the reasons why Jesse's mother divorced the father. And he kind of relived in his mind over and over his father flogging him. And he remembered this with real excitement, didn't he? Well, I mean, he did eventually, yeah, there's, uh, there's evidence. In, in researching the book, I dug up some letters that Jesse had written when he was finally captured and imprisoned uh, to another boy who was occupying the adjacent jail cell. And in these letters, Jesse uh, was, would ask this other boy to describe in as much graphic detail as he could the whippings and floggings he had received from his parents. And you see in those letters, there's this uh, extreme sadistic relish that Jesse took from hearing about these things. But, you know, and also at the same time, a, a level of masochistic pleasure that he derived from it. So, yeah, Jesse's very warped sadomasochistic sexuality was formed uh, apparently at a very, very early age from the kind of um, extreme abuse he received at the hands of his father. In your book, you talk about the influence of dime novels uh, in the 1870s. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the dime novel things... Uh, you, this is a subject that actually after uh, Writing Fiend, and partly because of Writing Fiend, 
you know, became very, very interested in and wrote a whole other book about called Savage Pastimes. I became very interested in the way in which popular culture, violent popular culture addressed to children has always been blamed for various supposed surge in juvenile crime. You know, our whole contemporary controversy over the role that violent video games play, for example, uh, in terms of uh, juvenile violence, that's a controversy that goes back, again, at least as far back as, as the time of Jesse Pomeroy. And in those days, it wasn't Grand Theft Auto. It was dime novels. Dime novels were a very, very popular form of narrative entertainment. They were the precursors of comic books, really, and pulp magazines and so on. They were cheaply produced adventure stories, uh, which did contain a great deal of very, very graphic violence in them. And uh, once Jesse was arrested, all these moral crusaders came out and claimed that his crimes had been inspired by his reading of dime novels. One of the major subjects back then were all these frontier adventures and stories about Daniel Boone types and their confrontations with redskins, as they called them back then, uh, who were always portrayed as barbaric savages. And uh, supposedly, you know, Jesse always somehow empathized, you know, with the evil Indians or the renegade white people. And supposedly, you know, he derived all this twisted pleasure from reading about these Indian tortures that were depicted in these dime novels. Right. And supposedly, you know, according to these, again, uh, finger-wagging moralists, it was Jesse's love of these stories that led to his atrocities. Of course, as with today, that completely discounts the fact that millions and millions and millions of people read them without going ahead and abducting and torturing young children. So... So, uh, again, going back to his timeline, he's caught and arrested, eventually convicted and sentenced to reform school. What was his experience like there? Well, he was sent to reform school, and he actually was very, very well behaved in reform school. He had been sentenced uh, initially to 10 years in the reformatory. Uh, at the time, he was, I believe, something like 11 or 12 years old. So they were going to keep him there until he reached adulthood. But he was somehow managed to be a very, very model inmate. And his mother, who was one of these women, one of these mothers, who remained very willfully blind to her son's psychopathology throughout his entire life and always felt that all these horrible crimes he'd been accused of, that he was innocent of these horrible crimes, managed to prevail upon the authorities and win uh, a release, him a release from the reformatory after only 18 months. So he goes to work for his brother, uh, selling and delivering newspapers. The family has a little stand in front of his mother, Ruth Ann's dress repair shop. Soon children start disappearing including a 10-year-old girl named Katie Curran. What, what happens to Katie? Well, uh, the Katie Curran girl, yeah, I mean, soon after Jesse's release, uh, a little girl named Katie Curran was given some money to go out and buy uh, a school book and disappeared. Uh, nobody knew what happened to her. And then not long after that, another little boy, uh, a little boy named Horace Mullen, four-year-old boy, uh, was found uh, very savagely murdered and sexually mutilated in a remote stretch of marshland. And immediately, because of the nature of Horace Mullen's injuries, 
some police officers who had very vividly recalled the you know the series of uh, of tortures and so on that had been perpetrated by a person who was already being called the boy fiend, namely Jesse Pomeroy. You know, noticed a similarity, and you know he originally said, "Well, it couldn't you know?" Some of them said it can't be Pomeroy because Pomeroy has been confined in the reformatory, but then they discovered that Pomeroy, in fact, had been released from the reformatory. So uh, Pomeroy immediately became the number one suspect for the Horace Mullen killing, and eventually Jesse confessed to that crime. Katie Karen was still missing, but then sometime afterwards, when new owners took over the property that this uh, newspaper stand had been located in, some workers who were renovating the basement came upon the corpse buried there, and you know, it was clear that Jesse had lured Katie Curran. Katie Curran had come into the newspaper store in search of a, a notebook, and Jesse had lured her down into the basement and also murdered and mutilated her. He cut her throat. And Katie Curran is is an anomaly for Pomeroy, because up until that point, he'd only attack boys. Well, you know, Jesse was a. You know, he was a, a sadistic sex murderer, really, of an unusually young age. You know, if you look at other psychopathic killers of that particular breed, it's not all that unusual for them to be kind of bisexual in terms of their choice of victims. You, you see that with Albert Fish, for example. You know, Fish kind of very much like Pomeroy, primarily preyed on young boys, but, you know, when the opportunity presented itself, he had, you know, no particular reservation about killing and torturing girls either. There's a, a very, very infamous serial killer um, in uh, Germany, Peter Curtin, and, you know, the case was the same with him. I mean, he basically was a, a homosexual serial killer, but he also happily um, tortured and murdered women when a vulnerable one presented itself. So, I mean, in that sense... Again, I think Jesse was a classic, what used to be called lust murderer, who fortunately, you know, his atrocities kind of got nipped a little bit in the bud. I mean, obviously, he would have kept on committing them if he hadn't been caught when he was. So Jesse Pomeroy goes to trial again, this time for a first-degree murder. His defense team hires alienists who interview Jesse and conclude that he was insane. The prosecution also brings in their own alienists, who determine the opposite. This idea of insanity uh, in the case of this boy killer was the focal point of the entire trial. At the time of, of Jesse's trial, there was a great deal of interest in what later came to be known as the phenomenon of the psychopath. The term psychopath had not been coined quite yet. And as I assume, you know, many of your listeners know, a psychopath is a person of generally above average intelligence uh, who seems to be quite normal, often has a very, very engaging personality, but who possesses no capacity for empathy, uh, no conscience is basically a, a hollow person wearing what one psychiatrist very famously called a mask of sanity and who sees other human beings as nothing more than objects to be exploited for his own twisted pleasure. Not all psychopaths are, are, are murderers, but in terms of homicidal psychopaths like Jesse, 
that's the, the psychological condition. But the word psychopath didn't exist back then, but they were aware of the phenomenon. They were aware that there were people who were seemingly very, very rational and sane, uh, but who employed their rationality for these very, very malignant ends. And the term that they used back then was moral insanity, sometimes moral imbecility, which is a very, very expressive phrase in a way more so than psychopath. And again, it's meant to convey the notion that these people are not rationally insane, but that they are, again, they have no moral conscience. Herman Melville writes about it in his famous novel, Billy Budd, where he says, you know, that a, a person, uh, he's describing the villain Claggart, you know, and he says that while this person's acts, his atrocities, would smack of the insane, you know, he goes about committing them in this very, very frighteningly rational way. So that was basically uh, what some of the alienists felt, that the condition that Jesse suffered from uh, was moral insanity. Uh, but moral insanity is not the same as legal insanity. You know, legal insanity is the difference between the ability to distinguish right from wrong, and psychopaths like Jesse obviously have that ability. They just totally ignore that distinction. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So the verdict comes back from the jury, murder in the first degree, with a recommendation of a commutation of execution by the jury in favor of life imprisonment. You write quite a bit about how divided the state of Massachusetts was about what Jesse Pomeroy's fate should be. Well, I think I think he was originally he was originally sentenced to be hanged, but he was only 14 years old, and that inspired a great deal of controversy in Massachusetts. You know, there were many many people who felt uh, Jesse should be hanged. They compared him to a wild beast, and so on and so forth. You know, the only way, really, to ensure the safety of the community would be to execute him. But then there were many many people who felt that it would be a horrible stain on the reputation of Massachusetts 
you know, this enlightened, liberal-minded community to execute a, a boy who was, I guess at that time, 13 years old. But eventually, Jesse's sentence was commuted to uh, life, commuted to life in solitary confinement, which, you know, many people felt was dooming him to an even worse fate than hanging. Right. Once Pomeroy's in prison, his, his focus is far different than his fellow prisoners. While most inmates get into trouble for a variety of expected offenses, you know, talking back to an officer, laziness, dereliction of work, etc., Jesse Pomeroy is obsessed with something entirely different. Yeah, well, Jesse, uh, I can't remember actually the exact number of times that he um, made attempted jailbreaks, um, but he devoted himself to trying, yeah, trying to get out of jail in various ways. I mean, uh, none of the efforts was successful, although at one time uh, he managed to set off some kind of gas explosion. That was about the closest he came. Jesse remained in solitary confinement for 41 years. You know, nowadays people consider it inhumane treatment to put a person in solitary for more than a couple of days. But during those decades, there would repeatedly be newspaper articles about these various escape efforts that he made. And really, Jesse kind of came to be seen by some people as this sort of heroic, indomitable spirit who was, you know, not letting the system break him at all, and who was constantly sort of like one of the characters in the movie The Great Escape or something, you know, was devoting himself to try to uh, free himself from these incredibly difficult conditions. Yeah, he actually attempts escape a dozen times, according to your book. And he, in one attempt, spends three years sawing through three bars on the door of his cell, making just enough room to squeeze through. But a prison guard catches him in the next room, hiding in a dark corner. So he's very resourceful and patient uh, during his time in isolation. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in reading, you know, Jesse became a very, very, you know, self-educated person. He started writing poetry. Um, he taught himself, uh, he, he, you know, he became very, very proficient in legal matters. He went from being this monstrous figure, the Boston boy fiend, again, this creature with these scary physical deformities and so on and so forth, to a figure, um, you know, who really began to win some kind of admiration among people, again, partly because of, you know, what people came to see, as, a, as I said, as this indomitable spirit that he had. And later on in life, he'd greet new prisoners who'd arrive, hoping that they would recognize his name. Yeah, I mean, eventually, when he was allowed into the general prison population, he took this pride in being criminal celebrity. Uh, and in fact, at some point toward the, the latter end of his life, when a younger generation of uh, inmates started to appear who didn't recognize him, uh, he became somewhat crestfallen that his, you know, his fame had started to fade. Right. Throughout his life, he would be asked by the police, lawyers, and reporters why he did what he did. His response was that he just did it because he had to. Well, you know, I think that um, you know, that's something that you will sometimes find in the case of people like, you know, Bundy, Ted Bundy, you know, would just talk about this entity in him 
that would sometimes take possession of him. And I think probably that is the way some of these criminals experience what happens to them. You know, they uh, at least feel that they are leading kind of normal lives, and then this thing will come over them. I mean, it is, you know, it is a compulsion. You know, it is a very, very dark, frightening compulsion that I think takes possession of, uh, you know, of lust killers like this under whatever conditions provoke it. So so I think probably Jesse did feel he just had to do it and didn't understand why he had to do it. The same thing was true with Dahmer. Dahmer was a very, very intelligent person, and, you know, he was in the grip of these terrifying compulsions that he had no, you know, that he had no way to control and had no comprehension of and was kind of curious about it himself. And you write that Jesse, when he felt this compulsion to kill, would have a physical reaction as well in the form of dizziness and pain in his head. Do you think that there's a physical connection between his compulsion and, and this pain? With well, his... it could be. You know, I mean, as again, I'm sure you know, there's been a lot of interest in trying to locate some neurological basis for this kind of criminal psychopathology. And again, in my own researches, some kind of extreme childhood, one would almost have to say torture, seems to be a very common denominator among serial killers. You know, it doesn't have to be physical. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's sexual, sometimes it's psychological. Again, relentless, constant humiliation uh, from early childhood on often seems to be a factor. However, as many people have pointed out, uh, there are, unfortunately, uh, many other people who have endured those kinds of things in childhood and have not grown up to be serial killers. So there's been speculation that there might be some other kind of factor involved, physiological or neurological factor involved. And one thing that you do often find in the case of serial killers is some severe kind of head injury that these people have suffered in their in their childhoods. So it's conceivable that there might have been something like that in Jesse's case. I mean, again, given the severity of the beatings that his father inflicted on him, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that, you know, something like that happened to him. Right. You've written so extensively over time about serial killers in, in American history. What stands out for you about Jesse Pomeroy and all the work that you've done? Well, obviously the most striking thing is his youth. I can't think of another serial killer, certainly, that I've researched who has not only begun this kind of crime at such an early age, but, you know, his whole criminal career basically took place between the time he was 11 and 13 years old. So that is... The mo- to me, the, mo- I mean, the most outstanding aspect of it. But, you know, the features of the case that were very interesting to me, including, as I said, the way in which his crimes were blamed on the, in the popular media of the time, the popular entertainment of the time. So, yeah, I guess his age. Also, when it happened, of course, there's a, a very, very common misconception that serial murder is a very, very recent phenomenon. 
also the fact that you have this serial sex murder committing his crimes five years after the Civil War ended or something like that is a fact that I think is very, very interesting and, and important to keep in mind. Yeah, I actually did a, an interview last week with E. Don Harp, who is a descendant of the Harp brothers. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, and, and certainly some of the earliest serial killers in American history, going all the way back to the 1790s. Yeah, well, you know, it's a. Uh, I, I sometimes give a lecture on the history of serial murder, um, and I call it uh, history of serial murder from one million BC to the present. <laughs> uh, the, the one million BC is is a rough estimate, but uh, you know, the point I make is that it's just a phenomenon that goes back to the very beginnings of our species and probably predates our species, since you find a kind of um, atrocities that we now associate with serial murder being perpetrated by chimpanzees. So there's no reason not to think that this is just some kind of behavior that's hardwired in human nature and goes all the way back, you know, in our evolutionary history. The term serial killer is very, very recent. It really just became a a common part of the language, you know, going back to the 1980s, even though it seems to have been coined back in 1930 or something like that. So, but but people just used to call them different things. Again, lust killers, or back in the Middle Ages, lycanthropes, and so on. There've always have been a certain, thankfully, tiny percentage of human beings, uh, men primarily, who have engaged in in that kind of savage lust killing. So. Right. So I'd like to ask you about Maneater briefly, if you don't mind. This is your latest work, published earlier this year. Can, can you talk about that? What is it about? Well, Maneater is a book about um, Alfred Packer, who is kind of a legendary character out west, particularly in Colorado. Packer was a guy who, when prospecting for silver uh, in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado back in the 1870s, and uh, he ended up being snowed in with uh, five other men, five other prospectors in the wilderness and emerged several months later by himself, um, looking unusually well-fed. And uh, it turned out that he had um, managed to survive by living off the flesh of the other five men who had been savagely bludgeoned to death in their sleep. And uh, Packer was eventually tried and convicted and sentenced to death for their murder. Uh, One thing, very important, uh, if you if you go online and look up Alfred Packer, there are many people who, who say he was the only man in American history ever convicted of cannibalism, which is in fact not the case. As it turns out cannibalism is not even illegal in most states of the Union. I think there's just one state of the Union uh, that has statutes making cannibalism illegal. Packer was convicted of murdering these five men. Anyway, his crime, you know, it became very, very notorious case for obvious reasons. He was sentenced to death. The sentence was uh, overturned on a technicality. He was retried for manslaughter and convicted of five counts of manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years in prison. And uh, ultimately, through the efforts of a crusading journalist, who believed his story? He claimed that he never he never denied that he had that he had feasted off the flesh of these men, but again, that kind of survival cannibalism was you know, not unknown 
back in the frontier days or on the high seas back then. So, again, he never denied the cannibalism, but he claimed that he had not murdered the other guys. He claimed one of the other five men, that he had gone off scouting. They were trying to make their way to an Indian agency, and he claimed that he had climbed a mountain to see if he could spot this agency. And when he came back down, he found that one of the other men, a guy named Shannon Bell, had murdered the other four men and then came at Packer and Packer had killed Bell in self-defense. So his claim was uh, that Bell had killed the other four men, and he'd killed Bell again in self-defense, and he was not guilty of murder. And some uh, crusading journalist, a woman named Polly Pry, became convinced he was telling the truth and and began a campaign to have uh, Packer paroled, and he was ultimately set free after spending, I think, about 18 years in prison. Wow. If you don't mind me asking you a personal question, how do you find the time to write so many books? You're so prolific and you produce at such high quality, but you're also a professor at Queens College in New York. Where do you find the time for all of this? Well, what I always tell people is, and this is true, (laughs) that um, uh, I write every day and uh, it's the first thing I do every day. Of course, I, I teach, I'm a college professor, college professors, don't have quite as onerous a schedule, for example, as high school uh, teachers do. Um, It affords me more time to write, but uh, after breakfast every day, I sit down and I write, and I try to write at least one finished page uh, a day. And what I tell people is, if you write a page a day, then at the end of the year, you have a 360-page book. Right. So, you know, I've been basically writing a book a year since I was 30 years old. And, and uh, you know, that's how I do it. I mean, uh, it's, it's not even a matter of discipline. It's a matter of habit. You know, you can, you can form productive habits as well as destructive habits. So, again, this is the advice I give my students who want to write. You know, try to write a page a day, and you'll have a book at the end of a year. But your work is doubly hard because you're not only writing, but you're doing the research as well. Yeah, well, that's true. I stagger things, though. I mean, I I will, uh, you know, spend, let's say, six months doing research uh, in a book. But while I'm doing that research, I'm also, like, finishing up the previous book. You know what I mean? You know, so, um, yeah, so it's definitely doable. (laughs) Definitely doable. Do you mind telling us what you're working on now? Well, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm working on a book... um, Working on a book about Bell Gunnis. Don't don't know if you know Bell Gunnis. Bell Gunnis was uh, known as the Lady Bluebeard of uh, Laporte, Indiana. Bell Gunnis was a woman who, a Norwegian immigrant who moved to a, a farm uh, in the city of Laporte, Indiana, uh, where I spent some time this summer doing research, and uh, ended up. She she would put these matrimonial ads in Scandinavian newspapers and lure um, guys to her farm and then um, kill them and chop up their bodies and bury them in her hog pen. Uh, And again, she was doing it, well, partly for commercial reasons, financial reasons. She would always make sure that these guys um, came to her farm with whatever money they had. And, uh, you know, obviously partly for other motives, since there are ways you can make money (laughs) other than um, murdering and dismembering guys and burying them in your backyard. So anyway, that's the uh, book I'm writing on. 
Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and I cannot wait to read it. And thank you for your time today, Mr. Schechter. My pleasure. This is the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcast to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. And if you got some free time and you're looking for a good novel over Christmas break, check out The Big Mitt, my novel of gangsters, con men, and absolute corruption in 1901 Minneapolis. The ebook is instantly downloadable at Amazon.com. What do you know? I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a spectacular day. <laughs> <laughs>